I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to, uh, or on your devices to, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to begin by reading the passage this morning. And Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would bless the reading of your word. Amen. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement... Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This book of Hebrews was originally written to a group of Jewish Christians who were drifting away from the central tenet of the Christian faith, the gospel. Instead of holding fast to the gospel message that sinners are redeemed and sanctified and glorified unto God by faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, instead of holding fast to This good news, 
The Jewish Christians to whom this book, this letter was first written, they were going back to the old covenant that had existed between God and their ancestors since Mount Sinai. And you can remember with me back to last Sunday when Pastor Ed so helpfully unpacked the definition of covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. A covenant is a contract, is a deal. And the old covenant that defined the relationship between God and the people of Israel for 1,500 years, that old covenant went like this from Deuteronomy 30. If the people of Israel obeyed God's commands in the law of Moses, God would bless them. He would protect them. He would provide for them. He would prosper them. But... If the people of Israel disobeyed God's commands in the law of Moses, God would withhold his protection, his provision, his prosperity from them. This was the old covenant. This was the two-way conditional agreement where obedience reaped reward and disobedience reaped punishment. And over the course of its 1,500-year lifespan, the Old Covenant ended up proving exactly what God designed it to prove. Humanity is incapable of coming into agreement with God on our own. Humanity needs nothing less than a Savior. We humans need to be made righteous by someone outside of ourselves who is truly righteous. We humans need to be reconciled with our creator God by someone who is capable of such a task. We humans need to be brought all the way home by someone who is strong enough to carry our dead weight. The ultimate purpose of the old covenant that Moses mediated between God and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai was to reveal the need for a new and better covenant that would be enacted on better promises. And that new and better covenant, hallelujah, has been made a reality for us in Jesus. That's exactly, precisely what Pastor Ed so helpfully unpacked last week in Hebrews chapter 8. And now, in the first 14 verses of chapter 9 that we've just read a moment ago, the writer of Hebrews is presenting his Jewish Christian audience with two significant limitations of the old covenant that are both fulfilled by the new covenant. And so if you're a note taker, We'll consider this passage under two summarizing statements, two points, if you will. Number one, the old covenant was earthly, but the new covenant is heavenly. That'll be point number one, and I'll repeat that as we go. Point number two, the old covenant regulations cleansed the flesh, yes, but the new covenant in Christ purifies the conscience. I'll repeat that as we go too. So number one, the old covenant was earthly, 
But the new covenant in Christ is heavenly. In verses 1 through 5, the writer of Hebrews describes for us the layout and the furnishings of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable covered tent that God instructed the Israelites to build at Mount Sinai. And the tabernacle not only served as God's earthly dwelling place, it served as the central fixture of all the old covenant regulations that were to be performed by the Levitical priests. The first section of the tabernacle was called the holy place, as we see here. It was a room about 30 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And in that holy place, that first room, was a seven-branch lampstand that was kept lit day and night. And there was also a table in that room upon which 12 fresh loaves of bread were placed every Sabbath, one for each tribe of Israel. And then, within that larger room called the holy place, behind a curtain was another room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. In the most holy place, which was a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15, inside the most holy place was the altar or censer of incense and the ark of the covenant. Now, if we want to just slide our eyes down quickly and take a peek at verses 6 and 7, we're reminded that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Levitical high priest would enter into this room called the Most Holy Place, and he would enter in in order to secure God's forgiveness for sins by sprinkling the blood of a bull and a goat before the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Most Holy Place. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the writer of Hebrews is telling us in verses 1 through 5, inside that Ark were samplings of the manna that God had provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's staff that budded and had been powerfully used several times in the wilderness. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was also the Ten Commandments written upon tablets that God had given to Moses at Mount Sinai. All these things were inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid called the Mercy Seat. And on the Mercy Seat, there were two angelic figurines called the Cherubim. And right there is where God's presence rested in the days of the Old Covenant. Okay, wow. So verses 1 through 5, we're looking down here, they give us a really nice description of the layout and the furnishings of the tabernacle, but why? Well, the point is that the tabernacle, with its fabric and pole structure and all of its furnishings, the tabernacle was a physical object. It was earthly and it was therefore limited to time and space. When the Israelites wandered from Sinai to Kadesh, the tabernacle had to be packed up to be moved with them. When the Israelites moved from Gilgal to Shiloh, the tabernacle had to be packed up to be moved with them. When the Israelites moved from Nob to Gibeon and then finally to Jerusalem, 
The tabernacle had to be packed up to move with them. In other words, the central fixture of all the Old Covenant regulations was bound to an address, a physical place on earth. It makes me think of the pre-internet age. Do you remember that age? (laughs) I don't. Before the age of online connectivity, if you wanted to watch John Piper preach a sermon, or if you wanted to listen to the new Thief to King worship album on Spotify, or if you wanted to buy yourself a new ESV study Bible, which is the Excalibur of Bibles, by the way, I fully recommend it. If you, had, if you wanted to do any of those things, what did you have to do? Before the internet age, you had to physically go where those things were. You had to go get them. But now, in the age of the internet, those things have been made accessible anytime, anywhere. And this is what the new covenant provides that the old covenant could not provide. The new covenant provides us with unlimited, unhindered, unobstructed, unfettered access to the God of creation. See with me how verses 11 through 12 actually provide a contrast against verses 1 through 5. So we're looking kind of like one eye. If you can, let's be chameleons for a second, right? One eye is on verses 1 through 5. One eye is on verses 11 through 12. Look what we read in 11 through 12. When Christ appeared... As the high priest of the good things that have come, these good new covenant things, he entered through the greater, more perfect tent. He entered through a tabernacle that isn't made with human hands because it isn't earthly, it's heavenly. And he didn't begin a once a year venture entering behind an earthly curtain with the blood of earthly animals. He entered once and for all behind the heavenly curtain with the blood of his own body that he shed upon the cross. And his blood is so pure, so potent so powerful, so prevailing, it has secured the eternal redemption of every last person who will repent of their sin and trust him. The heavenly new covenant is infinitely greater than the earthly old. And one reason is that you and I We don't have to time travel back to the ancient Near East of of the ancient Near East in Israel. We don't have to GPS our way to the front entrance of the earthly tabernacle to have an earthly priest make us right and pleasing to God. In order that you and I and everyone, including the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this letter, would know for certain that the old has passed and behold, the new has come. What happened when Christ took his last breath upon the cross? The earthly curtain of the old covenant was torn from top to bottom. And now the way in wide open. 
wide open. That earthly curtain kept man from getting too close to a holy God. Jesus said, it is finished. It was rent from top to bottom done because the way is now unfettered, accessible. The new covenant has been ratified and nearness with God, hear this, nearness with God is experienced anytime and anywhere Christ is believed. You're in the, you're in the holy of holies when you simply go, yeah, Jesus, your savior, you are. So point number one, the old covenant was earthly, but the new covenant is heavenly. Number two, the old covenant regulations cleansed the flesh, but the new covenant in Christ purifies the conscience. Verses six through eight. Within the first section of the tabernacle on a daily basis, the general level priests would, they would care for the tabernacle and its furnishings. They would judge disputes between the Israelites they would teach the law of Moses and more. But into the second section of the tabernacle, the most holy place, only the high priest would enter and only once a year and only to sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat for the covering of that year's sins. This happened. This was the setup for 1,500 years Sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings and guilt offerings. Bolts, uh, bulls, that's a, that's a combination of bulls and goats, you know, bolts, right? <laughs> bulls, goats, sheep, doves, bulls, goats, sheeps, doves. Are you following me? again and again and again and again for 1,500 years. And it all makes me think of the cleaning formula that my wife and I used to use for years. I don't remember what the brand name is. We have um, five kids at our house. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> so we have five kids. We also have a white couch I have no idea how that all played out or why we even did that. The cleaning formula we used to use, like every moment on the white couch, that cleaning formula had this uncanny ability to make a stain go away, kind of. <laughs> like, <laughs> you remember this, like overnight, the exact same stain that seemed to have been dealt with would like reappear in the exact same place. And way too long a period of time went by until it finally occurred to us, the cleaning formula we are using really isn't cleaning anything at all. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, the same is true of the tabernacle and the holy place and the most holy place and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. According to this arrangement, verse nine, according to this arrangement, 
gifts and sacrifices were offered again and again and again and again. But at the end of the day, those things were powerless to actually purify or perfect anyone to the degree that deep down they knew they were clean. No one walking away from a sacrifice felt clean. And the law of Moses, verse 10, it could regulate what the Israelites were and weren't allowed to eat and drink and how they were to wash when they touched a dead body, etc., etc., etc. But these regulations were nothing more than outward bodily regulations that were powerless to purify from the inside out. And therefore, they would fade at the appearance of the new covenant reformation. That is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Christ has entered once for all into the heavenly holy places, verse 12. And by his own blood, he has secured for us an eternal redemption. Now listen to the rhetorical question of verses 13 and 14. If the blood of mere animals, of an imperfect sacrifice... If the blood of mere animals was enough to purify the outward flesh, how much more will the blood of God's Son, who by the power of God's Spirit offered himself on God's altar as your perfect sacrifice, how much more powerful is that blood if animals were able to cleanse your flesh? How much more does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanse you all the way through and through and through forever and amen. Three implications of being made so pure is that we can have a clean conscience, we can stop with our dead works already, and we can actually serve the living God. That's what the writer of Hebrews closes up with in this section. We can have a clean conscience. Do you know what a conscience is? It is your inward sense of what you believe to be right or wrong. And church squabbles happen all the time because of conscience. Matters of conscience that are not thou shalts. They're conscience. Read Romans 14, right? Living under, though, and we're going to apply it this way. Living under a perpetual weight of guilt for things that you have confessed to God, things that Jesus died to pay for, living under a perpetual weight of guilt has no place in the Christian life. None. 1 John 3.20 tells us whenever our hearts condemn us, remember this, Christian who by faith you're in Christ, you believe Christ lived and died and rise to absolve you of your sin, to cleanse you, to bring you to repentance. Whenever your heart condemns you, brother or sister in Christ, God is greater than your heart. Than your heart condemning you, God's greater. He reminds you himself by his spirit. No, 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 no. It is finished. Don't do guilt like that. There is a righteous guilt, yes, and we'll just call that the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit, when we're in God's word and the Holy Spirit makes clear to us 
my thoughts, words, attitudes, and actions, they are out of step with God's word. And I am impressed with, I am sensed with a righteous level of guilt or conviction. There is no condemnation, but a goodness. I need to confess this and I need to turn the other way. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation, between the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the guilt of our conscience. We mustn't do guilt for those of us who are in Christ. A fleshly guilt has no place. And so what that requires of you and me is that we preach to ourselves the gospel and that we tell on ourselves to one another. The, the community group atmosphere is a perfect environment for this. To so pull a brother or a sister over to the side after the meeting and say, you know what, I just continually, I'm just irked with, I just, I had such a pattern back in the day of acting like this, thinking like this, speaking like this to my wife or to my kids. And I just, for some reason, it, I, the, the, you know, the voice of the enemy just constantly tries to taunt me and, and make me feel condemned, but I've repented of it and I'm striving to walk in Christ in it. And, and that brother or sister will need to say, well, you need to turn that, you need to silence that, but you need to take that thought captive and silence that accusing voice by saying, it is finished in Christ. It's finished. B. We, need, we can now stop with our dead works. In this con- context, for the Jewish Christians, the dead works were the things of the law, the religious things that they were doing to make them feel like they were adding to the purity that they already had in Christ or they were somehow magnifying the purity that they already had in Christ. Now for us, how many of us, goodness mercy, church attendance, tithes and offerings, serving in the kids, you know, ministry and doing this, that, or the other, we are so quick to view those things as a sweetening of the deal for God or uh, kind of a transactional, ah, I need to serve in this way because I, I haven't given back to him in a while. I haven't kind of paid my dues. No, those are dead works that we can now cease from Because Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has earned and secured everything and transferred it to your account if you're in him. There is nothing to do, there's nothing to earn, there's nothing to prove, but simply an outworking of living a life that is worthy of the gospel. Jesus, by your spirit, help your spirit to produce fruit in me inwardly that then outwardly transacts this way that God I love you with more and more of my heart soul mind and strength and I love my neighbor and serve my neighbor and serve this person like myself three we can actually do this because of the power of the Holy Spirit which means we can actually serve the living God an old covenant mindset so naturally comes to us, right? Again, the transactional sense. But when we serve, when we serve at the pregnancy care center, when we serve here vacuuming carpets at the end of the, of the gathering, when we lead our community groups, when we pray for our neighbors, when we walk with our kids and disciple them, right? There is no transactional thing taking place. Jesus has already secured our right standing, yes and amen, forever. And now we get to simply walk in it and walk out a life that is worthy of the gospel that's been bestowed to us and the same is with communion and so I need to transition because of our time 
Look, when the Israelites first agreed to these terms, the terms of the old covenant atop Mount Sinai, when they first agreed, what happened? Well, blood needed to be shed. And they were sprinkled with blood because a covenant requires blood. And so it's no mystery when we read through and get to the Gospels that on the night of Jesus' betrayal, it was Passover. He took, after the Passover meal, he took the bread and he broke it, passed it to his disciples. And then he took the cup and gave thanks to God for it and gave it to his disciples to drink. And in doing so, he instated the ordinance of communion and instructed us to take of these elements, the bread and the cup, every time in remembrance of him. And what did he say afterward? This is the covenant this is the new covenant in my blood. And what Jesus did after that was like the sprinkling of the blood atop Mount Sinai. A new covenant was being ratified and he poured out his blood. The new covenant has been ratified by the blood of Jesus. And that is what we celebrate when we come forward to the table. To take of the bread and the cup, we declare the Lord's death that he died in our place to absorb our sin, to die and to absolve us of the penalty and of the guilt. He has given us two ordinances, baptism and communion. Baptism, of course, is patterned in the New Testament and it's a one-time event that takes place immediately following someone's conversion. But the Lord's Supper is an ongoing ordinance that the believers of a church take together regularly, declaring the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in an effort to practice communion as properly as possible, as appropriately as possible, here at Oaks, we have in the past, we've encouraged the parents of younger children to wait to serve the communion elements to their kids until their kids are standing more so on the two feet of their own faith. And we think that faith is, is necessary. Our practice has been well intended, but we're going to adjust our practice a little bit. We don't want to give any of our children here. If there are children, and this is a rough ballpark, right? Ages to, from seven to 12. If your child has a credible profession of faith, a believable profession of faith. If your child is able in his or her own words to express Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross in their place, that he died a sinner's death in their place and that he rose to life as a guarantor of eternal life for those who trust in him, who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. If your child has a credible, in his or her own words, a credible profession of that faith, we would love to, from hence this moment forward, welcome them to the table as a believer. As a believer. That brings up a lot of other things like baptism. We'll talk about that at a later date. But suffice it to say for right now, brothers and sisters in Christ of all ages, if you have a, a credible profession of faith, if you understand and believe, repentantly believe, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you have not, died the criminal's death that you deserve on account of your sin, 
and left your sin dead in the grave, but rose to life in victorious day for all who place their faith in him to be saved from their sin and justified before the Father and sealed for eternal life. If you believe that, then would you take of this family meal with us this morning of the bread and the cup, declaring the Lord's death until he comes, repenting of our dead works that we think are somehow adding to that, adding and sweetening the deal for the Father who sent his Son to reconcile and redeem, right? That we would repent of that, that we would repent of our negligence, that we would repent of the many ways that our lives do not reflect the good news that we claim to believe, and that we would also do so with celebration, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's none whatsoever. It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter. Confess your sin to God and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of it. And he will surely, surely forgive. And if you are here and if you've never responded to that gospel invitation, I would urge you to do so right now, right in your seat, right where you are at. Look here, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, let alone the next 15 minutes. Life is but... It, well, it's, it's, a, it's a vapor. It's here now and it's gone tomorrow. Would urge you to put your trust in Christ, in the completed work of Christ, and so be reconciled with the Father forever and be true and right and pleasing to him right now where you stand or sit. So let's pray. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward. And when I say amen, Ed and Diane are going to lead us in, in some singing. And, and you are welcome, believer, to come forward and take of the communion elements. If you are not a believer, I would encourage you not to, but instead, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how can we but thank you for Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you give to us an understanding of your word that we might further comprehend the glories that we behold, the glories that we behold in the new covenant that you have made with us through the blood of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray. I pray for those in this room who have never responded to this simple yet profound message that those who confess their sin and believe in their hearts that Jesus was crucified and resurrected to save them, they in fact will be saved and are saved now. Lord, for us, I do pray that our hearts would sing songs of repentance and celebration as we joyfully and triumphantly come before these elements to take of them, to declare Jesus' death, and to absolutely look forward to his return. We pray all of this for your glory, for our joy. Be praised, be worshiped, be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.